it's tough on the players. I think the social media has made it harder for the players today because they're afraid to go places and go out and enjoy themselves and have a good time because you never know who's behind you. Welcome to Conversations with Connors, a NetworkWise podcast, and I'm your host, Adam Connors. NetworkWise trains and educates individuals and organizations in the science and art of networking to accelerate sales, personal development, and career opportunities. In Conversations with Connors, I talk with a variety of highly successful individuals in order to gain insights on how they built, maintained, and cultivated their relationships in order to live a life by design, not by default. For any Mets fan, 1986 was a magical year, if not the most memorable time to be a fan. The team was amazing, so much so that they were deemed the Amazings. During that year, they won 108 games and went on to win the World Series in one of the most memorable series in Major League Baseball. The team was loaded with talent, over-the-top personalities, chemistry, and charisma. One player that always stood out to me was Wally Backman. He played the game the way it was supposed to be and was a spark and often catalyst for the team. He always hustled, dropped bunts, ran out every hit, moved players into scoring positions, stole bases, as well as scored runs. It was no surprise that he was a clubhouse favorite or one of my favorites for that matter. As you can imagine, it was an absolute thrill for me to sit down with one of my childhood idols. Needless to say, Wally was a hit and he delivered. Today, Wally's still in the game of baseball, but now playing a different position. Coach, something he takes tremendous pride in. The man has a passion for the game, a competitive drive, and a love for making people better, reach their true potential, and ultimately get them back into the big leagues. For any baseball enthusiast, you will enjoy this conversation as we discuss Wally's career, people he's played with, and what it takes to make it in the big leagues, as well as how baseball has changed, for good or bad over the years. We also covered the importance of communication, mentors Wally's had and their importance, sabermetrics, home field advantage, playing in New York, and the importance of chemistry both on and off the field. Now, without further ado, let me take you to my conversation with Wally Backman. Enjoy. So we're just here to have some fun, Wally. I, I appreciate you sitting down. I don't think there'd be a person who's listening that doesn't know who you are. Great track record in sports, particularly, I guess you're probably best known for the Mets, 1986. But what do you or do you personally identify more as the player or do you identify more with you today as the manager? I think today more as the manager, you know, as a player, great times. That was my time, my era when we played, we won a World Series. And now it's really about helping these other players get where I'm at now in the Atlantic League, giving them an opportunity to get back to affiliated baseball. I take a lot of pride in that. And I think the players that come here know that last year I lost nine players back to affiliated ball or overseas to Japan. So I take pride in trying to help these players, give them a second opportunity, and in the process, win games. Awesome. Now, when you say second opportunity, is that what this, the Atlantic Division is? Or isn't it? are there any people that are coming up through this division? There's not anybody really coming up. It's They're all handpicked. The players that come here are all handpicked. Right now, if we stopped our roster at 25 guys, which we carry during the regular season, we carry 27 guys up until the end of May. But if I had my 25 guys that were on the roster, 24 of those guys have played in the major leagues. So the level of play is a very good level of play. 
it's kind of like a 4A level, maybe a little bit better than AAA outside of maybe the pitching. But it's given these guys an opportunity that have played in the big leagues. Or if there are guys, last year I had guys that hadn't played in the big leagues that I got signed with different affiliates, different organizations to give them a second chance. The coaches that I bring in are coaches that can still teach, but the whole atmosphere in this league is all about winning. Awesome. And then what are you going to do differently in this, in the independent league that they're not getting? Or like, what are you doing different than AAA to try to make these people well, more you're, prepared? you're not, here it's all about winning. In the minor leagues and affiliated baseball, it's all about development. And I've always said that winning is a part of development, but in affiliated baseball, it's really, that's their number one word is development. Here it's about winning and giving a guy's a second opportunity. We're going to do the same things that you would do in affiliated baseball, the bunt plays, the extra work. We do all the same things that they do in affiliated ball because baseball is all about a routine. So these players that come in, they have their own routine. We stick to the routines because that's what baseball is. It's a routine. Yeah. So do you have the pressure? Well, actually, I have two questions. Do you have the pressure to win? Does that mean there's a higher probability of potentially burning out the pitchers? No, I will treat every pitcher the way that I treat him in affiliated baseball. For instance, at the minor league level, if a guy pitches two days in a row, he can pitch three days in a row as long as his pitch count is down. But I'll use the basic standards that we use in affiliated baseball too. Hmm. Talk to me about the fundamentals of the sport at this level. Like you are a fundamental guy. What about bunting? I used to love how you, when you used to do we're, the We're going to do those things. Yeah. I think as I speed it up a little bit, some of the rule changes that are in baseball that's going to be in effect here. Can we talk about that? Because in the Atlantic, because they're talking about some pretty interesting, maybe radical, is that the right word to describe? Well, they're the different changes? for yeah, sure. Okay. You know, Major League Baseball is looking for more action in the game. So a pitcher having to face a three-hitter minimum or finish the inning, it's going to speed the game up. I think last year, and my numbers aren't exactly right, but it was over 2,300 guys that came into a game last year in the Major League level that never faced three hitters. It might have been just one hitter or two hitters or whatever. That's They're trying to speed the game up a little bit. So the, the top 10 guys out of those 2,300 games, unfortunately, were all left-handed pitchers, situational hmm. guys. So they're trying to speed the game up in a sense, but I look at it like they're trying to make the game like the game was when I played, more action. Strikeouts are up higher than they've ever been last year in, in Major League Baseball. So with that being said, I think you're going to try to see – more guys stealing bases, probably hit and run a little bit more. They want more action in the game, and I get it. I think the fans want more action. You know, years ago when Sabermetrics started, it was an out was an out. Every out was the same. And so even if you're moving a runner over from second base with no outs, they still consider that an out. It's an out that did something good for the team to be able to score runs. But they're going to make the base from a 15-inch square to an 18-inch square that's more, I think, for safety. I mean, you yeah. see guys get stepped on on the bases, yeah. but but also it moves the base somewhere around four inches closer from first base to second base. And baseball is a game of inches, so mm. those guys that are just out when they steal second base are going to be safe now. So there is going to be more action. It's going to be harder for the catcher to throw those guys out. So some of it's interesting. I know that they talked about moving the mound back. How far? Two feet. Two feet. And we were actually going to do that here in the Atlantic League after the first half of the season, it's all for Major League Baseball to collect data because they put the track man in at all these stadiums in the Atlantic League. So we're not going to do that now. We're That's going to wait until 
next year. And if we do it, then we'll do it next year. But they made a decision just here a few days ago that we're not going to move that mound back two feet. But those other changes we're going to make. We're the It's going from two minutes and five seconds in between innings to 145. They're trying to just speed the game up a little bit and make it more interesting. Gotcha. I thought it was like 141 or something, like some really weird number. Yeah, I it's 145, it is but it's, it's, still, it's still 20 seconds faster, so it's going to speed the game up a yeah. little bit. I think the thing that's really going to speed the game up is the pitcher having to face a three-hitter minimum or finish the inning. Mm-hmm. So those things will speed the game up. I always like baseball because there's no clock on it. Yeah, so it should be interesting, and then yeah, it just changes the dynamic of it. Kind of like when you were playing the uh, – I forgot what they called that, when you used to switch back and forth, you and Tim and Tuffle. Tuffle, yeah. Yeah, what was that called when you rotate um, – Platoon. Platoon, yeah. So do you have an opinion on that? Do you- well, you know what it does? It creates competition. Me and Timmy are still good friends, but when we played, we both wanted to play every day. So <laughs> yeah. it created a competition and kept us – at our best, I think. Fortunately for me, there's a lot more right-handed pitching, so I played a lot more than Timmy did. Uh-huh. So it wasn't so bad. But it, it creates competition. Davey Johnson was the manager back then, but I think if you look at the overall numbers, what Tim Tuffle and I put up in 86, they're big numbers. A lot of stolen bases, a lot of RBIs, a lot of runs scored. It was a good combination. It was a part of the success that we had in the 80s. Yeah, I mean, the chemistry, and again, who else platoons? So Mookie and uh, Lenny, Lenny. They, they platooned. They platooned also. Yeah. yeah. I think, again, it creates competition. Everybody wants to play every day. That was my desire. I know it was Lenny's desire, Mookie's, everybody's, Timmy's. So you're out there competing against one another, but in the process, you're making your team better and you're winning games. Yeah. Why do you think more teams aren't doing that? I mean, it was just such a successful recipe. Well, I think one of the things – Probably money has changed the game a little bit. Yeah. I mean, you got big guys making big contracts, and you can't take a guy out of a game platoon, and you're not going to platoon for a guy that's making $25 million. It's That part of the game has changed. The players have gotten a little bit bigger and stronger, and platoon has pretty much kind of gone by the wayside now. So, But I think in certain situations and certain teams, even in the major league level, they do it to an extent. Some of them do. Yeah. So you clearly have a passion for baseball. (laughs) How early did this start? Well, you know, it's funny because in 1990, after I left, got traded from the Mets to the Twins, and then I didn't really care for Minnesota, and I went and played in Pittsburgh, I used to sit by Jim Leland, who was my manager then, very good manager. And he always told me, Wally, you should think about managing when your career's over. And so I'd sit by Jimmy, and I'd just watch him. Jimmy would ask me questions, and I was a player on a bench because I was platooning in Pittsburgh, too, with Jeff King at third. And Jimmy would say, well, what, what are you going to do in this situation? And I, whatever I'd say, I can't even remember what he was talking about half the time, but he'd say, no, you can't do that. you got to do this because they've got this guy in the bullpen, and they're going to bring this guy in to face this guy if I bring this guy in. So I learned a lot of stuff. I played for great managers. My first manager when I first went to the big leagues was Joe Torre. I mean, that speaks for itself. Yeah. You know, so he was always good. He was always. Joe was a great manager. I think his track record shows that. And then I played for some other guys in between there, but I was able to play for Davey Johnson. We won a World Series. Jim Leland. I go to Jim Leland. Then I go to Lou Pinella. So I feel like I was fortunate as a player to play for those managers because every one of them should be in a Hall of Fame, I think. And to learn little bits and pieces from each one, I thought it was special. Give me a little bit of what you learned from each one of them. I think I learned from, you know, Joe was my first manager when I came to the big leagues. I was only 20 years old. So I don't know that the first thing that I learned from Joe was I met the team in L.A. as a September call-up. 
and I hit a double off the wall in my second or third at bat. And I thought it was a home run. And I could run. And I only ended up with a double. And he was the guy standing there. Big Joe was standing on the top step when I came around and scored. And let me know that, hey, I wasn't a home run hitter. Do your job. It should have been a triple. And he was absolutely right. So, I mean, Joe had a stern hand, but a not a soft heart, but he cared. He cared about his players. I think all those guys that I mentioned really cared about their players. Davey was a great guy. Davey gave me my first opportunity to play every day. It's a funny story because I played for him in AAA, and we ran into each other in Hawaii in the wintertime, and that's when he was interviewing for the Mets job, and he told me, if I get that job, he said, Wally, you're going to be my second baseman. It wasn't two weeks later when Davey got that job, and he called me right away and told me I was going to play second base. So Davey really was the guy that gave me my first opportunity, but Davey was a player's manager. He got along with the players. We could sit and have a beer together with your manager and talk baseball. Back then, it was all about sitting around a clubhouse, maybe having a beer or two, talking about the game, learning from what we did wrong that night to what we can do better the next night, which you don't see anymore. And then with Jim Leland, the communication was outstanding. He talked to the players that didn't play on an everyday basis, probably more so than the players that played every day. I can remember we had R.J. Reynolds in Pittsburgh in 90, and we had Bobby Bonilla, Andy Van Slyke, in the outfield, and who else? Who's was the catcher? It? You're a good catcher. Too. It was Andy Van Slyke in center? Barry Bonds. <laughs> Barry was in left, and Bobby Bonilla was in right, and and R.J. Reynolds was the fourth outfield. This guy got over 300 at bats. Those guys never got hurt that year. So the way that Jimmy could keep players sharp, if something were to happen, was amazing. That was who Jimmy Leland was. The communication skills was unbelievable. Lou Pinella was. Maybe I'm more like Lou. You know, I can yell and scream a little bit at umpires and stuff, but Lou was a guy that would let you know one thing, play the game hard and play it right, be fundamentally sound. And if you didn't do that, Lou would get in your face. He never got in my face, but that was who Lou was. He expected the game to be played with 100% at all times. But like I said, they all had good qualities to them. They were all great managers. It's a shame that they're not managing anymore because I think they some of them still could, but their knowledge of baseball was way above and beyond a lot of people that I think are in the game today. Why do you think they're they're not managing? Well, I mean, they did it a long time. I mean, Jimmy's getting up there in age. Joe is in the commissioner's office now, you know, and Lou, I think Lou could still do it, but, you know, he's had some issues, I think family issues with parents or whatever, and I know he still loves the game, but he did it a long time. They all had great careers, and I think it was they felt that it was just time for them to step aside and spend more time with their family. Yeah. Does it not wear on you, just the travel? Yeah, it could wear on you. Yeah. I mean, it's I've been doing it since I was 17 years old and I'm 59 now, so it's I don't even worry about the travel. Yeah, you know, yeah. it does travel gets old, but it's the competition that you look forward to every night. Mm. What did you do back in the day to stay in shape and to keep your body ready versus what they're doing today? Well, and, and- I think players today, it's nonstop for them pretty much. I think that when I played I never really did anything until after December, after Christmas, and then I'd start working out. So I'd work out pretty hard for five or six weeks until I came to spring training. I'd make sure my legs were in shape, my hands were in shape. I'd take BP and stuff like that. But there wasn't so much lifting back in those days. And today, these guys are lifting a lot. And so I don't know if it's coincidental or whatever, but you see all these oblique strains and all this stuff today. I think players today are so worried about what their core looks like that they're never giving those obliques a chance to rest. And I think that that's part of the problem with the oblique strains. But that's just a different change in era. 
we didn't care. John Cruck didn't care what he looked like when he went up to bat, you know. So you think? But uh, and Crucky was <laughs> yeah. a hell of a player. Yeah. So it's just a different era. It's different now today. Yeah. You know, the game is still the same game when you get between those lines. As baseball has shown, we're trying to change some rules and change the game a little bit to try to get it, I think, more back to old school where there's more action. Hmm. You said you do stuff for your hands. What were you doing for your hands? Well, I think that's where all your strength is in your hands and your forearms when you hit. So I know your lower half is a big part of it too, but get your hands in shape where you get calluses, get your shoulder in shape from throwing a baseball and things like that. So when you do get to spring training, it's funny because you can hit and you can take ground balls inside or whatever in a field house or whatever before you go to spring training. But until you actually put those spikes on and go back out in the dirt, you find out that you get muscles that are sore that you didn't think were going to get sore, but they get sore, but it goes away. Yeah. What do you do for the conditioning for your players right now? What do you have them doing? Well, we have a gym here at the stadium, so yeah. we still will do the same process as basically that we did when I was in affiliated baseball. These guys will lift two to three times a week, some before the game, some after the game, but we'll have a program for them to do, and so a lot of the players that have been in affiliated baseball, they have their own program. So our trainer or strength coach will oversee what they're doing to make sure that they're doing what their program is. At this level with these players, there's not a whole lot of policing going on because it's their career. This is their opportunity to get back or to go somewhere where they can really make money if it's overseas or what it might be. What are they looking for in you? What is it they're hoping to get out of you at this well, level? Some of the guys have played for me, so they know what I expect. And I expect to win. But the one thing I think the players know about me is I'm here for them. It's not about me anymore. I played my 14 years in the big leagues. And this is about the player, me helping the player. Like I said before, I sent nine guys back to affiliated baseball last year or overseas. And I think only one guy has returned this year to the team that I had last year in New Britain. So the rest of those guys are still in affiliate ball. So now when you said that you sent them, how much of it is a result of just like your coaching or versus maybe some of the relationships that you've developed with other people in the industry? Well, uh, some of it is the relationship, but it's really based on the player. Yeah. It's about their performance. When they come in and show that it might be a player that hasn't been healthy. John Neese is a perfect example. I signed him in a tryout a couple of weeks ago. Hasn't really pitched for the last two years because of injuries. Played all those years with the Mets. And Johnny's only, I think he's only 31 years old now. So for him to come here and to pitch, I know he'll pitch well, but I think it's all about showing that he's healthy. The affiliates have already seen that the guy's been hurt for a few years. But I think if John comes in here and he pitches well for a couple of months and shows he's healthy, he probably won't last long. So, And it's going to be that way with a lot of guys. Do you think Nice has got what it takes to go back to the show, or do you think he'll I do think so. Yeah, I think at the tryout, I don't know, we had about 15 to 20 guys that were had played in the big leagues come there. We had a lot of guys there. And John threw to four hitters. He threw one ball and struck out two guys. <laughs> so he shows that he's got his, he has good command. I think with Johnny, it's just the whole thing is showing that he's healthy. Yeah. When they're coming here, is there a higher level of maturity because they've kind of been at a certain level? Now they're coming back and they're like, shit, we got to get it together. This is our chance. We're going to do what it takes and they're going to fall in line. Less ego, if you will. Yeah, no, I think their ego is going to be fine. You know, I try to explain to them what to expect and to expect a lot because there's a lot of guys trying to do the same thing. So it's about performance. Mm. When they get here, it's about performance. It's just not coming to an independent league and thinking just because I played in a big league seven or eight years, you're going to walk through it. Because I've seen a lot of guys, even last year, my first year in this league, come here and think, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. 
and the guys end up hitting 210. So hmm. he's not going to go anywhere hitting 210, but it's a good level of play. It's a good level. I think that's why Major League Baseball and the Atlantic League have signed this three-year agreement because of the competition and the maturity of the players that have played in the big leagues. So where they can collect this data, it's better than going to AAA or to AA or something like that. Back to the data and the sabermetrics, what are the pros of it and what do you see as the drawbacks of it? Well, you got to understand the only drawback that I would say to sabermetrics is you got to understand that the player is a human being. It's not a robot. There's good sabermetrics that help you win games and you can find a sabermetrics that I, I could argue with you all day long about. But the percentages from what the track man does, it tells you exactly how to position your defense against a hitter. It's That's good information. Yeah. If that information is going to help you win, win games, the data that it collects for ground ball percentages and fly ball percentages and swing and miss percentages and swing and miss percentages with two strikes is good information for the manager. You can really use that stuff to help your team win games. You know, it tells you who who you can walk to set the double play back up. And you're not going to walk a guy that's 65% fly balls to try to set up a double play. It's not going to work. He's going to hit a sack fly. So, I mean, it gives you some good information that makes it easier for you to manage. Yeah. And it, it can better your players because they can see that data too, where how a pitcher pitches them, if they're trying to stay away from them, starting to throw the ball in on them, or whatever it might be, the players are able to see that data as well. So it makes it a little bit easier for them to make an adjustment. So how much of a, I guess you're in a game time decision, are you making a decision on when to pull the pitcher, keep them, or even the batter versus being in the moment and the statistics? Because you know the energy of a game. I have how, all that information yeah. in front of me at all time. Yeah, you do. Okay. And so it's, for me... You know, you got to let the game unfold, see what's going to happen. And then I've got to be four or five hitters ahead. And so you're thinking four or five hitters ahead? Oh, yeah, ahead? Absolutely. absolutely. Four or five hitters ahead as a pitcher on the pitching side, you're thinking about who's going to be coming up? or On both in, sides. On both you know, sides. Who, who might pinch hit for me or who, mm-hmm. who might come in the game to pitch for me. You can't get, you see a lot of people get caught up in the moment. And you've seen it in the big leagues. They bring somebody in out of the bullpen to pitch, it has to be warmed up. So that's getting caught up in the game. That's not knowing what's going on. And you have to be prepared when you're down by two and you get two guys on and you you pinch hit for your pitcher and all of a sudden, or you pinch hit for the eight-hole guy and the guy that's not supposed to hit a home run hits a home run. Now all of a sudden you're up by one run and you got a middle guy up in relief opposed to having your setup guy ready to come into the game. Those are things that, that you got to pay attention to. So as a manager – you can't get caught up in the game. You, mm-hmm. you manage the game for nine full innings until it's a win or a loss, and you go from there. How do you stay focused for nine innings or extra innings game after game? I'm always so impressed with the stamina of baseball. Is it a competitiveness that it's, you have? You know, when you get to extra innings, it even gets more competitive. It's nice to have those games where you win 5-1 to one or 7-2 to two or whatever because you're just letting your players play. You're really not involved in it. You're just – you're making the decisions who you're going to bring in as a pitcher and when you have a lead like that. Or if you don't have a lead or you're down by one, do you have enough confidence in your offense to bring in those eighth and ninth inning guys to try to get you to the position where you can win? And sometimes it might be the sixth inning. The sixth inning might be the inning that you really are going to save the game as a manager to put it in the hands of the guys you want it to be put into. So 
it's competition is yeah. what it is. It's about enjoying the competition. It's about putting my players in a position to where I really believe they're going to succeed. Is it really interesting? I had a, a gentleman on, on my show who is, he's a tennis coach. He's won at all levels a couple times. And I'd asked him, I said, candidly, how much of an impact do you think you as the coach are having on your team? And he said, I forgot the number, but it was like 5%. And in my head, I was thinking, God, that really doesn't sound like much. But then he extrapolated out 5% of, I forgot how many, I don't know tennis well, but it ended up being the difference between significant, and yeah, significant amount. You know, so. I, I, thought, I would say that in baseball, it's more than 5%. I believe that a manager can be a big part of quite a few wins by putting positions in. You got nine guys on the field, so you got probably four or five on the bench. So those four or five guys can really be significant in winning and losing ball games, especially late in games and extra inning games. Those are the guys you got to use. So Putting those players in positions to succeed, I feel, really falls on the manager. Understanding those players, your everyday guys, you know they're going to play. They're going to do their job. But when it gets late in the game, to be able to put your bench and pl- those players on the bench in positions to succeed makes a big difference. Same with your bullpen. Using your bullpen properly, letting those guys in the bullpen know what their role is so they can prepare themselves They can watch the game, follow the game. I do it with all my bullpen guys. This is your job. If you don't like this job, then show me that you should be the eighth inning guy or you should be the closer or the seventh inning guy, whatever you should be. You prove that to me, but this is your job right now. Like it or not, you can prove to me that you need to be in a better spot, but at least they know what spot they're in and when they have to prepare themselves. Preparation is huge. For the manager, motivation issues. That's a daily thing. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. So what would you say in managing a team, you've got to keep morale up. You've got to manage the team, the, the players that are playing the everyday positions. You've got the different coaches and you've got the game itself and then the motivation of those areas. And I'm sure I've missed some. What would you say are the most important and what would you say are some of the more challenging? Well, or, or I, I, I think the most important job for a manager outside of managing the game is motivation. I think you have to motivate your players. That's your job to motivate your players to keep them on an even keel or whatever you might want to call it on a day in and day out basis. It's all based on communication. You can't just talk to four or five guys today and four or five guys tomorrow. You got to communicate with your whole team day in and day out. I'm a players manager. And so, yeah, I probably do devote more time to the position players, but that's why you got pitching coaches and all those other coaches that devote that time to their pitchers. But you still, as a manager, still have to motivate your pitchers. You got to communicate with those guys. And if you try to single certain people out, I don't think it works. So you don't believe in the Barry Bonds rule? Have you heard that term before? No, which one's that? The, the Barry Bonds rule, that he's just such an extremely superior player that you kind of kind of cater to special to him no i think everybody's an individual and i get it that certain times you have to bend the rules a little bit for individuals i'll give you a a prime example is when i was with the diamondbacks was i going to be able to handle randy johnson the same as i'd be able to handle somebody else well randy johnson had a bad back so he's not going to be the guy that goes out with the rest of the pitchers and runs poles. He's got to sit in the clubhouse and ride a bike. So it's not really stretching a rule. It's, it's making it convenient for that certain individual to be able to stay on the field. I mean, this guy needed to pitch every fifth day, so whatever it was going to take. That's when I talk about routines. Every player has their own routine. You try to keep it as a group. 
as a togetherness, like a family figure. You're with these guys for 160 games a year or so. To me, it's important to be able to, you got to change. There's got to be a little bit of change from time to time. But then again, on the other hand, you want everybody to stay on the same page. So these are things that as a manager, you would talk to your players about. So before it ever gets to the point where, God, this guy doesn't have to run and this guy doesn't have to come out early for BP or whatever it might be, those are that's up to the manager to communicate that with the players so you can keep that clubhouse as a good clubhouse, keep the chemistry correct in the clubhouse. How do you keep people motivated? How do you keep you motivated? <laughs> uh, it doesn't take anything to okay, motivate right. me, and I don't think that it should take anything to motivate a player. But as a manager, it is your job to make sure that they stay motivated. You can see the difference in people. you got 25 different personalities out there. It's almost like trying to be a psychologist at times. And you've got to be able to see those things when it's you take a guy over on the side and you're out there taking batting practice say, hey, Jimbo, man, you got to pick it up a little bit. It doesn't look like you're going about your business the right way right now. I'm trying to give you a little kick in the butt to let you know what you need to do. The circumstances are depending on who the player is, the manager doesn't have the opportunity all the time to just take that guy right out of the game, especially at the major league level. So you have to find ways to motivate certain players. There's a lot of guys you don't have to motivate. I mean, you watch the way the Mets are playing today. Brandon Nimmo plays the game. He played for me for a couple of years in the minor leagues. You don't have to motivate this kid. He plays 110% every inning of every game that he goes out there. So, But there are certain individuals that you got to kicking about once in a while and motivate them as a group. You can have team meetings maybe once, maybe twice a year it works. But after a while, that stuff just <laughs> is running right through the player's head. I was a player for a long time, and I, my manager come in there and screamed at us, I get it once, and I might get it twice. But he's really, when he's doing those things, he's probably pointing a finger at, at one or two certain individuals. And players are smart. Yeah. They know what he's talking about. So hopefully you can get through to your team if that – comes down to something like that by not just pointing people out. They don't want it. They used to, in the day, you'd point them out. But if you do it as a group, you're hoping that individual understands who you're really talking about without saying his name, and maybe that helps the player motivate himself a little bit more. Mm. Tell me about some of the people that have come through your system that you feel you've made an impact on or how they've turned out. Well, we can look at the Mets pitching staff right now. I had every one of them. I mean, I can go back from having Matt Harvey and Jerry's Familia in AA when they came to me for one year, and then I had him in AAA, and then I can talk about Jacob DeGrom having him and Noah Syndergaard having him and Stephen Matz having him. So, I mean, there's a lot of guys that I had that's on that big league club right now. So Brandon Nimmo, I mean, just a lot of them. Wow. Well, what is it about them? Is there any common thread amongst those gentlemen? I think the, the common is work ethic and determination. What about humility? Yeah. I mean, these guys are, they can see that big stage coming. I can remember the best story that I can think of was when Jacob DeGrom came to me. I believe we were playing in Iowa, and he was coming from double A. What, what, what year are we talking? Roughly? This would have been four years ago, maybe? 14, I'm going to say 14, 15, somewhere in there. I could look back and figure it out. But the Mets sent him to me to pitch one game and to fly back out to go back to Binghamton after he pitched the game. And this is after I'd had everybody, because Jake was came after Harvey and everybody else. And I said to him after he pitched the game, he seven innings, a few hits, whatever it was. I said, you're going to send this guy back to double A? I said, are you nuts? 
I said, this is the best pitcher I've had all year. Definitely and, and the best you knew game. that you knew then he was clearly a standout. Well, he wasn't because you had Syndergaard, you had Harvey, you had Mats as the number one pick. You had all those guys. And Jake was kind of on the, on the backside. That's when Rafael Montero was a big upcoming guy the Mets thought. Anyway, they let me keep Jake. And Terry and I talked about it this year at the winter meetings about, God, Wally, I remember when you and I talked and they brought up Rafael Montero and, and Jacob DeGrom at the same time. Or Rafi was right there already. And they were going to let Rafael Montero pitch in Yankee Stadium because he had more experience than Jake DeGrom. Now, Rafael Montero is a great kid, but he not even a high school education. Jake DeGrom's got a college education. They were going to save Jake to pitch at Shea Stadium. Or it might have been City Field still there then. But anyway, so that's how it happened. And Rafi did pitch at Yankee Stadium, and Jake pitched it at City Field. And their next question was, we're thinking about putting Jake in the bullpen and keep Rafael Montero as a starter. And I, Terry and I laugh about it still today. Said I said, Terry, it'd be the craziest thing that ever happened. You know, Jacob DeGrom is going to be a quality starter. I mean, you could see it in him in the determination and the desire. And it's all on Jake because I'll tell you what, the kid worked hard. And I know coaches helped him and worked with him, but he's a guy that had maintenance in between starts. I think if Jacob DeGrom, if they would have done that at that time, he would have got hurt. And the rest is history. What he's accomplished is second to none, you know, to win the Cy Young last year and to pitch the way that he's pitched this year so far is he's a great pitcher. Yeah, I really like his level of humility. I've got it. It's amazing. There's no question. Where's that come from? Is that coaching? Is that parenting? It probably starts at parenting. It's hard to find out exactly how all these kids were raised, but a lot of it comes from within the individual. If it's because the way they were raised – and the way that they were coached in the end, if it somehow intermixes with each other. But I think it really, coaches are there for the players. And you'll find out some coaches are there to put a label on a player and say that they did this for the player, and this is why the player did this and did that. The players deserve the credit. You can bring a player in and tell them, okay, this is what I see that you need to improve on. You're just giving the player a suggestion. If they don't, go and do what you suggest that they do, or if they even use a little bit of a part of it, the credit goes to the player because you're just making a suggestion to the player. You're not telling the player he has to do this or he has to do that because players won't respond that way. You're making a suggestion to a player, and if the player takes that suggestion and uses whatever piece of that you've given him for his best interest, he's going to be the best player he can be. Where can you have the biggest impact on the players? Is it mental? Is I think it's physical? mental. Okay. I, I mean, you can do both. It can be physical. You can take a player and you can take a below average defender and make him an adequate defender, I think. You're not going to take a hitter that's a 220 hitter and make him a 300 hitter. It's not, but you might make the kid a 250 hitter. It's a little bit of both, I think, from the teaching aspect of it to trying to teach them the mental side of the game, to be able to prepare themselves before the pitch is made or as a pitcher – see yourself making the pitch before you ever make the pitch. Those are the mental parts of the game that I think are real valuable to the player. Teaching a pitcher, especially now, like I can't go out and talk to the pitcher now. If the manager goes out, the pitcher's out of the game. So you got to be able to teach your pitchers how to slow the game down. A lot of times when you send your pitching coach out to the mound, when everything's getting hectic, there's been three hits in a row and on four pitches, and you want to send your pitching coach out there just to try to slow the game down for the pitcher. Well, we can't do that anymore. And so somehow we have to teach the pitcher to be able to step off the mound, back off, 
and be able to slow the game down himself. And that's not easy because they get caught up in a moment. So it's a big thing. It's going to be a new learning process that, that we're going to have to try to teach at this level this year, which is probably going to fall into the major leagues. And even in the major league level, the wheels start turning on some of those pitchers when things start going bad and the wheels don't fall off and it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. So somehow I think the mental side of it, to get my point across, I think the mental side that you can teach the player, the more that you can teach them, I think the better they're going to be as well. Are you finding that the players these days are more open to these kinds of things versus back in your day? Um, I would say I think we were more open back when I played. Because of a respect to, of elders or? I think it was we respected them, and I think the players respect the, the coaches and things today too. But money has become such a big issue. If I'm going to make a mistake making $20 million a year and I did it on myself, it better be the right coach that I'm listening to. <laughs> you know, I think coaches go a long ways, and, and I really believe – now, I'm not going to say every coach has to play in the big leagues because I know that's not true. And there's some great coaches that haven't played in the big leagues. But if you're a hitting coach, if you're a pitching coach, and you've never been in that situation in front of 55,000 people, <laughs> you're going to have to do a hell of a lot of work with that certain individual to earn his respect. As a coach, as long as I played, I feel today that I have to earn the player's respect before they have to respect me, even with what I've done in the game of baseball. I think if a manager goes about his business that way, I got to earn his player's respect. So he trusts me and he understands that I'm going to do everything I can to possibly help him. It's big. Mm. What about social media? How do you deal with all of that from a coaching standpoint? You got to be so guarded in what you say. I mean, what- you got you to be careful. You got to be careful. You know, it used to be that totally different game in the day. You and I and half the other team is, we're going to go out and have some beers, go sit at a bar, have a good time. It used to be all talk about baseball. And today, you could say one thing wrong or or you could look like you did something wrong and somebody takes a picture of you or has got you on tape and you don't know it. So it's tough on the players. I think the social media has made it harder for the players today because they're afraid to go places and go out and enjoy themselves and have a good time because you never know who's behind you. Yeah. Has home field advantage, have you noticed any difference these days in home field advantage at all? Well, I think it's always more fun to play in front of your home crowd. The advantage is, yeah, you get that last at bat, but how many games do you play that you don't even need that last at bat, even if you're the visiting team? So I know teams probably as a whole, if you look at the numbers, play better at home than they do on the road. It's Is it because you sleep in your own bed or what it might be, you're with your family or whatever? I think it's the crowd. That's what I think. I think your home field advantage is, is your fans, and especially here in New York. I mean, your fans here will let you know what's going on. They're knowledgeable fans, but you always want maybe want it a little bit more when you're at home. Yeah. Do you, Have you noticed, I mean, you played all over. Is there any fan base that you found to be like extraordinary that just stands out a little bit? Well, New York for sure. Really? There's no question. New York fans, to me, were the most knowledgeable fans in all of baseball. I played in Philadelphia. Boy, don't let them get down on you. I was just going to ask you. know, but then I played in Minnesota. In Minnesota, you could be 0 for 19, and if you ran down the line, you still got however many people, the 25,000 that would be there still clapping for you. So, <laughs> really? I mean, there was yeah, some crazy yeah. places. San Francisco, they might be talking about your family, and you're on the on-deck circle, and they weren't talking nice about your family either. And you got to be able to blank that stuff out 
and do the process and go play the game. So every stadium is a little bit. Pittsburgh was, they're tough on you. Yeah, you know, even on their home players. You know, I played there. They're tough. But in all reality, I think they keep you on your toes. The big cities are the cities that I enjoyed playing in front of. When I got traded from the Mets to Minnesota, it was it was almost like I went back to AAA. <laughs> and that's when all the stadium, nothing against any of the players yeah. who were playing. I played with Kirby Puckett and Kent Herbeck, some of the greatest players in the game. But it was going to the stadiums, so the old Cleveland and Baltimore and Detroit. Those stadiums was like, all the stadiums in the National League were nice. And I go to the American League for the first time, and it's like, God, these places are dumps. You know, it's just like, <laughs> that's what I'm talking about being in the minor leagues. Yeah. It was some of the parks that you played in in the minor leagues, were they were dumps. And it was a little bit of a culture shock when I went from being in the National League for nine years to the one year that I went to the American League. Outside of just the quality of the stadiums, would you prefer the National League style of ball? Versus, Absolutely. Yeah. National League style is, I know they're talking about both sides going to a DH, yeah. but you know what? I'm a National League guy, too. So the National really. League, there's strategy to the game. And the moves that the managers make, there's strategy to those moves. In the American League, you got your D8s. You got to have your seventh, eighth, and ninth inning guys coming out of the bullpen, and you got to know how to use them and when to use them. And that's your job, basically. In the National League, you got to know when to bunt or if you're going to try to hit and run or when you're going to pinch hit for your pitcher or if you're going to make a double switch. There's a lot more strategies, and we're talking about all those different moves that you're making, and it's what I talked about before is putting players in positions where you feel that they're going to succeed. I'm going to bring this guy up to hit because I know they're bringing this guy up in the pitch, and I'm trying to put that hitter in the best possible situation he can be in. Yeah, so your four or five steps, that's where you're talking about. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, gotcha. So one of the best things about baseball that I love is there's always so many stories. And I'm sure you've got, is there oh. any, I mean, in all the years, is there a story in particular that just stands out? Yeah, but I'm not going to tell you about it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's go back. Is there a second story? <laughs> there might not even be one of those. There, there's so many, there's yeah. so many stories in baseball about, God, I mean... <laughs> I know. I, just I can remember getting question. hit with an orange right in the chest at about 100 miles an hour on an airplane. I can remember <laughs> getting. For what? Why? Food fights on the airplane. Oh, just I between mean, the planes. Yeah, we, I mean, yeah. we did some crazy stuff. You know, I mean, it was, we flew to Montreal one time and they gave everybody a two pound bag of pistachio nuts and every one of those nuts ended up on the floor. And that's <laughs> when we were flying. I believe it was when we were on Delta. Now that was with the Mets. The Mets are back on Delta now. But that's you when got we ended up to fly. <laughs> we got kicked off of Delta and had to fly U.S. Air. We called it U.S. Scare. <laughs> so, I mean, those are that's just yeah. so many other stories that a guy could talk about of the oh, fun yeah. that players had and off the field. We had a good time. We enjoyed the game. We played as a team. We hung out as a team on the road. A lot of us did. I don't know if that happens as much today as you would. That, that was where I was going. It's like, is there you know, is that camaraderie? That camaraderie, that chemistry, your team. I think it's really harder now to get that chemistry. You still have to have talent, but you can look on paper. The best teams on paper don't always win because the chemistry's not there. Mm -hmm. Now, if you take a good team and they have good chemistry where they're fighting and pulling and doing all the little things for each other, that wins you ball games. If that wins you five or six ball games. Maybe you win your division by two games because you had that chemistry. Again, you still have to have the talent, but you got to know how to put that talent, I think, together and try to get the most out of it. Mm. Do you have a moment in your playing days in particular on the field 
that stands out? Are there any stories, anything? Yeah, where, outside yeah. outside of the World Series, the only story that I really got is when I was in Pittsburgh in 90, and it was late in April sometime, and Ted Power was the pitcher at the time. We are playing the Padres, and I was in Pittsburgh, and I was five for five. <laughs> and uh, I told Teddy, I says, Teddy, I said, there's two outs in the ninth. I says, get a hit. I says, I've never had a chance to go six for six in a game in my life. <laughs> and so it was the only hit Ted Power got all year as a pitcher. We were beating him bad. Mm-hmm. And so he was able to hit, lead let him hit, and then I got a base hit up the middle to go six for six. And <laughs> the biggest memory of it isn't so much of me going six for six, but it was Ted Power getting his only hit of the year as a pitcher. So <laughs> it was just a good time. That's awesome. <laughs> Before I let you go, I do always do this thing with my show. I get random pick, random questions laid out. Give me a number between 17 and 59. 28. 28. Let's see what 28 is. Tell me three things that happened to you in the last week that you're thankful for. Okay. Number one was getting here safely to New York. Number two, actually, I got number one isn't that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say number one was Huntington Mazda giving me a car to drive for the summer. All right. Nice. Getting here safe, I think, to New York is two. And three is... Today, I'm almost finished getting into my apartment. Ooh, where are you moving to? To Dix Hill. Or not Dix Hills, It's off of Deer Park Avenue. All right. Moving. God, you've had to move so much. Is it still, I mean, is it just part of the game or it's is, like, part, is it always a pain in the ass? Hey, it's part of the game and it is a pain in the ass because <laughs> I'm 59 years old, man, and I was carrying stuff upstairs today. So oh. so it's it, it's all upstairs now. So I, I just got to unpack everything. So we're good to go. <laughs> what makes you forget to eat lunch? Work. Yeah. You get caught Work. up. I mean, like just before you guys got here today, I just stopped with my one of my clubhouse kids, and we had a couple of pieces of pizza. I had no breakfast because I'd been running around all day, so that was what it was. Oh man, well, I gotta better let you go get some chow. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on today. A lot of fun. It's an honor to actually to meet you. I was a fan back in the day, and uh, I love what you're doing now. I actually think what you're doing now is I think this is better than being the player. It looks like you're spawning more dreams than just your own. It's really, it's all about the player. That's what some people forget. It's about the player. Yeah. Do you think you'll go back to managing in the majors? Well, you know, I mean, that's why I'm here. You know, that's my goal. I think that I can help at that level as good as I can help at this level. But it's a matter of getting the opportunity. Yeah. Carmen Ucci says that he has no doubt that you will and will be an excellent manager in that league. Well, I thank him for that. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, I thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Conversations with Connors, a network-wise podcast. If you or someone you know is looking for a career change, building a business, seeking to expand sales, or is just generally interested in improving your overall health and happiness, then head on over to NetworkWise.com to gain access to a plethora of resources to help you build your networking skills and community. Those who are ambitious will network. The ones who succeed will network wise.